0: a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risks and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. Everyone in our industry is facing massive disruption, and this season we've been focusing on how game-changing leaders, both within the industry and adjacent to us, are taking the lead from being disrupted to being the disruptor. So today I speak with Shantanu Argawal. He's president and co-founder of Sustian, and through carbon capture technology and decarbonization strategies, they're inventing the solutions to build a decarbonizing, affordable energy future. Today, we're going to talk specifically about their direct air capture. They refer to it as DAC 2.0, and it's so exciting to get a peek into the vision for this really important enabling technology, not just to decarbonize the energy system, but to address what are going to be really, really hard to decarbonize sectors. Um, There's a lot to learn about Shantanu, including his background in the oil and gas industry. And you can uh, read more about that in our show notes. Uh, One thing I'll foreshadow for you is that there's really a lot of reason in the oil and gas industry that we need to be intentional about uh, retaining our millennial and Gen Z staff because this kind of company is very exciting. And so we need to be creating and generating this kind of opportunity and excitement within our work as well. So you can learn more about Adam and T and Energy Thinks at our website, energythinks.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with game-changing leader Shantanu Argowal as much as I did. Shantanu Argowal welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: Thank you, Tisha. Thank you for having me. It's uh, truly a pleasure and an honor to be here. Look forward to discussing the very important topic of uh, climate change on this.
0: Well, I'm really excited because I saw your talk at the Breakthrough Institute's Future of Energy series in the fall, and I was enamored with your Direct Air Capture uh, 2.0, and I'm hoping you can tell our audience about your vision, and your technology.
1: Absolutely. So I don't know how much the audience is aware, but I think it might be worthwhile to start with what DAC is, what direct air capture is, because uh, that's very important to understand because there are some pioneers who have been working on DAC for a while. It's recently caught a lot of uh, publicity and a lot of interest, but uh, some of those folks have been working on it for probably 10 years. There are companies like Climeworks in Europe, Carbon Engineering in Canada, Global Thermostat here locally in the US. They've been working for quite a few years and that's what I would call the version one or 1.0 technologies, which have been invented and been built around. The challenge which these guys and we are solving are is quite difficult because DAC itself is a very difficult problem to solve. You're talking mm-hmm. about taking 3000 tons of air, processing that to get one ton of CO2. You're moving a lot of air to get one ton because the concentration of CO2 in air is quite, quite low, as you know, 415, 417 ppm. And then you have to do this at a significant scale for it to matter. So any kind of DAC technology for it to be, successful has to be very cost-efficient for it to be done at scale and it needs a lot of energy it needs megawatts of energy and it needs to be built uh, with engineering methods which are possible to build that at scale so capex opex energy all these things become very important factors of making DAC a success now DAC 1.0 with all these players has paved the way so first of all it's a big thanks to these guys to really uh, make DAC a reality make DAC an option and we learned from all these problems which these guys are facing And we'll continue to face because of some of the underlying technology challenges. And when we started out sort of thinking about how do we take on this DAC challenge, we had a clean sheet of paper and we really focused on how do we engineer around these problems? And so what we have done at Sustion is essentially build a technology which we are actually spinning out as its own company now called Sustera. So that is now official. It's going to be, it's raised its series A and uh, it's going to be announced uh, over the next couple of weeks, actually. So the basic science, what we have done basic innovation, the secret sauce is the unique sorbent material, which we have identified and functionalized and it is based on an abundantly occurring natural material. A lot of the other sorbent materials which are out there are quite highly engineered like MOFs, metal organic frameworks, that's for MOFs, or they could be amine based systems. Again, those are, those become quite expensive and they also have durability and reliability issues. So our sorbent is what really makes us very, very differentiated because it's quite abundant and it can be quite low cost because of that. And then we have engineered our system in a way that it is can be manufactured almost in a gigafactory Tesla type of style. So you can actually have a large unit manufacturing unit which is producing these modular systems which can then be assembled on site anywhere in the world almost like Lego block. So you can you can essentially build very large scale units, million ton capture, 2 million ton capture per annum type of scale by assembling standard unitized blocks, which are coming from a factory. So, and then we are able to use existing engineering, existing supply chains, which we are all leveraging to allow for no runtime, because otherwise when you're building a new MOF system, you have to, first of all, manufacture a MOF. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the MOF manufacturing is another learning curve which you have to go through. So we have, we have tried to reduce the number of learning curves which are inbuilt in our system. So we can scale quite fast because that's what's needed for us to get to that gigaton removal type of scale, which the world needs. And lastly, and most importantly, we are completely based on carbon-free electricity. So we don't need any fossil energy at all. So with the systems which we have built in our engineered unit, we believe uh, all these things contribute and our landed price for a million ton per annum type of scale is right now, our estimates are $78 per ton. And we, and we hope that we can further reduce that in the future.
0: Wow. So much to be optimistic about there. And congratulations on rolling out Sestera. News to me. I love it that we all learn something new and, and you get to share that new information here on the podcast. Talk a little bit about how this technology fits into a larger vision for net carbon negative. Just because our listeners are oil and gas leaders. And while we all intuitively understand this idea of net carbon negative technologies, it's my feeling that they're going to be mission critical to reducing carbon, period. But they're going to be a really important partner with ongoing use of fossil fuels and hard to decarbonize sectors. Can you cast uh, your vision for where net carbon negative technologies and yours fits in to this larger addressing of climate change and decarbonizing our energy system?
1: Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So the net negative emission technologies are going to be a very important piece of the overall carbon economics or carbon budget, which we are all trying to live with So if you think about it, we've been talking about one and a half degrees and two degrees and trying to limit it somewhere in the middle there. But even with a two degree plan, if you look at the budget, which we have, we have certain, we certainly need the avoided emissions. So anything which is today emitting carbon, if we can essentially move that to something which is clean is absolutely necessary. So production of our power from solar, wind, all these renewable technologies, all these things are very, very necessary because that's essentially we are not emitting anything new. But there are still going to be quite a significant piece of our emission profile, which is going to continue into the middle of the year and probably till the end of the year, where we either don't have control because the countries which are we're talking about need that emissions to be able to develop, or it's just natural because we are already increasing the temperature and there is a huge amount of methane which is coming out and other sources which are getting unlocked because of the temperature. So there is a lot. Of emission, which we can control, and we should absolutely move to the uh, renewables. But there are things which we will not be able to control, and those emissions have to be countered by a negative emission technology. Otherwise, we will go above our budget and we will essentially be facing large scale climate change. So, uh, by all uh, analysis and most conservative analysis which I've seen, by 2050, we need at least five to ten, five as a minimum. Most, most of them say 10 gigaton of per annum negative emission technology at scale, adoption. So you're talking about that sort of scale. Now, uh, obviously negative emission technology is considered. There are lots of different ways to do that. And there is your biosphere-based systems and there's the geosphere-based systems. Mm-hmm. So the biosphere-based systems being forests and soil sequestration, which a lot of environmentalists are talking about. And that they're all good and absolutely should be done. The, the challenge is over 20, 30, 50 years where we don't have absolute control of environments, we don't have absolute control of what Earth is doing and what the future generations are going to do. The biosphere-based systems are not as durable. We can't really count on them as confidently as Mm -hmm. compared to geosphere-based systems. So my personal preference, and I think a lot of the investment community who is trying to sort of uh, get things, get these carbon credits are now moving towards geosphere-based systems, which are guaranteed carbon sinks for thousands of years. Mm. And there you have biological based CCS or air capture based CCS. And we are in the air capture based CCS. So go ahead.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. It's such a great picture that you paint both the need for negative emissions and the options. And I'm just going to build off of that because you you talked really about how you developed the sister system for scale and lower cost, which is unique that you started there. And I love the idea that you're building off DAC 1.0 to allow you to be able to do that. Can you talk about uh, your vision for how and in, in what time frame is this scalable or is that unknowable at this time? Are, are you yeah. so developing or are you imagining because of the way you're developing some you know building Building block type manufacturing that we could be seeing these systems out in the world, or do we have a, a bunch of uh, years of R and D ahead of us?
1: Yeah, so we are building it to scale fast. That's our underlying main objective. So, and the need is to scale very fast. I mean, as I told you, five to ten gigaton by twenty fifty. That's thirty years, and as compared to today's scale, you're talking about five hundred thousand x increment in incremented carbon capture capacity of the world. So, thirty years, five hundred thousand x scale is unheard of. Mm-hmm. So, from our side we are hoping to have our first million ton per annum type of scale unit around 2027. Okay. Our first commercial unit will be uh, live around late 2023, about 10 ton per day. And then we're going to build probably uh, 50,000 tons per annum type of capacities our next buildup. So after the first commercial demo of 10 ton per day, we are hoping to go to 50,000 ton per annum in 2024 period and then on to a million ton per annum, which will be our standard units which we'll deploy all over. So by 2030, uh, I mean, our objective internally for our company is to remove half a gigaton in the next 20 years.
0: Okay, wow.
1: So that's what we're trying to do. And that means we're going to deploy multiple of these 1 million ton per annum type of capacity Mm -hmm. units starting from 2027 onwards to sort of scale that.
0: It's so exciting. And I just want to put a plug in that I get an invite to tour one of these as soon as they're ready because it really just brings out my inner geek, but also my inner optimist because the news coming out of COP was so much. So in some ways it was aspirational, but it it didn't, it it was untethered from solutions at scale. And so it's really delightful to talk about this. Let me pull on one more item that you talked about that we didn't explore, which is this is going to require so much energy. How do you do, how do you use carbon-free sources and still have scale and reliability?
1: So we're using renewable plus storage at this point. That's what we're working on. And I'm hoping, I mean, with the massive, massive funding, which is going on with, on fusion, maybe in uh, 15 years or 20 years when this is really scaling to gigaton type of scales, fusion is there to really back it up. But I think today and even, I mean, for long-term scaling as well, our current plan is to use renewable plus storage. Okay. And uh, that is wind plus uh, solar, which gives you kind of alternative night and day type of uh, energy and uh, some storage during the transition times so of the evenings and the mornings. Okay. So that's how we're thinking about it.
0: Okay, great. Thanks for talking about that. I'm interested, uh, well, first, congratulations on recently winning a DOU award. When you've announced your Series A funding for Sestera. Can you talk about the role of public-private partnerships and what a DOE award means for you?
1: Yes. So I think DOE is playing a very, very key role in uh, helping all the technologies in the sort of carbon capture domain develop and de-risk. And I think that that is a very important role for someone to play. And it has allowed us to find the money to really do the early stage testing and confirm, confirmation for allowing us to uh, get the technology into a TRL 3, 4 stage where investors will start taking a look at it. I mean, TRL 5 is probably where investors would really take a look at it. So that's the Journey the early TRL risking has to come from some sort of grant source, and that's the role which DOE has been playing. And I think their role is going to go continue to become bigger and bigger with this infrastructure bill which has passed, where there's a large sum of money which is going to be dispersed through DOE and managed through DOE. And uh, even the new infrastructure bill, which is come uh, which is currently in discussion in Senate, there is a there, there the role of DOE is going to continue to grow, and it's very important for uh, for them to sort of play that role because the first of a kind units in the type of technology which you're talking about for carbon capture and even hydrogen and all these things it requires a lot of capital and it is not a proven technology today. So the first of a kind unit needs government funded capital. And that's where I think DOE can further enhance a lot of these acceleration paths to help companies. So I think the role they're paying is very, very critical and very important. And we owe them a big thanks to really support us through mm. our, our journey. And I love that.
0: I love that. Well, and, and congratulations on just on so many levels. This is really exciting. I've mentioned to you that our audience for this podcast is oil and gas companies, and that's up and down the value chain from exploration through gas utilities. Have you partnered yet with oil, gas, or utilities? And if you could make up your dream partnership, because a lot of these companies have uh, venture arms now, New energies arms. They're thinking about how to be involved in this space. What does what your dream partnership look like?
1: So firstly, I want to recognize Total, Total Energies. They are a partner in our DOE project, which was granted. So we already have a partnership with Oil & Gas Major, who's changing their business as we speak in significant ways away from Oil & Gas as well. So that partnership is working quite well for us. And we actually are thankful for Total to sort of help us with a lot of insights and also the cost share which they're providing in our project. In terms of my thought process of how I think of a dream partnership with Oil & Gas, I believe Oil & Gas companies overall have the skills and the infrastructure for scaling and building large scale projects. That's what they are good at. That's what they've been doing in the oil and gas market. Now, decarbonization is all about large scale project building. It requires EPC, it requires project management, it requires supply chain, it requires all the skills which a large project, which oil and gas majors manage, have expertise in. So if an oil and gas major truly wants to commit towards carbon capture and Decarbonization as a business unit and actually invest in it, they can actually become leaders in it faster than others because they have a lot of in-house skills which can come to the fore to benefit them. So I think for us, a partnership, when we are building our 1 million ton per annum plant with oil and gas major who's ready to sort of co-build it with us in terms of bringing in their expertise, bringing in their capital, bringing in their finance ability, all those things is, is probably the best thing. I think as far as invention is concerned, the early stage risk, that's probably where companies like us us are better off doing it. Mm -hmm. But I think the scaling part is where ONG majors can be fairly big. 2021 shareholder proxy season held important lessons for oil and gas companies, with investors imposing new demands on targeted firms. What does all this mean for your company? Adam Ateen's latest white paper gives you our top-line proxy season insights. Download it today at energythinks.com backslash papers. That's energythinks.com backslash papers. And now, back to the show.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me because in addition to all the scale of building, there's going to be the needs for siding. There's going to need the, to be the ultimate. However, we ultimately deal with the carbon that you capture, Absolutely. which brings me to that question. What will you do with the carbon that you capture, especially once it's at scale? Will this ultimately be subsurface sequestration or some kind of utilization? What's part of your vision of that?
1: So in Sustion, which is our invention R&D business, uh, not Sustera, which is a direct air capture technology, business, uh, we are building a bunch of utilization technologies as well. So I think utilization, long-term CO2 as a source of aviation fuel, as a source of even uh, raw materials for petro, uh, for uh, uh, synthetics, for your plastics, all these things to sort of create a complete 100% cyclical pathway is, I think, uh, the, the long-term way of things which is to come. Instead of using fossil, CO2 will become our source of carbon for anything which requires carbon. So there will be a lot of utilization play. Plays which become major uh, major plays in the uh, in the long run i think in the interim probably in the next 10 years those utilization plays are still going to be going to have to compete with the traditional crude oil so mm-hmm. their economics is going to be continued to be challenged but i think for the next 10 years i would think sequestration is going to be the major pathway so i think even in the long run sequestration is going to play a major role because we need to pick a lot of the carbon which we have dumped in the air out so both sequestration and utilization will play important roles. We are thinking of, we are already partnered with a few sequestration players who are helping us take this uh, CO2 which we're capturing and putting it down in the earth, either making rocks out of it in, in situ or allowing it to stay in uh, very microbubble forms in saline aquifers. So both of those mm-hmm. pathways are being explored. And the utilization plays are something which we are working on ourselves in Sustium. Mm,
0: there's just so many opportunities for partnership, moving CO2, sequestering CO2, and then all of the petrochemical chemical work that will go into these utilization plays. So I see lots, lots of opportunities, uh, particularly when we start thinking about these things at the kind of scale that's required and that you're imagining. I, I love that. So um, let me just pivot a little bit to talk about how you lead your, your organization, how you engage as a leader in the oil and gas industry. We're always having to next level our leadership, particularly as this millennial generation is coming into their, into their own. Your company is founded by two people of color and um I'm curious about how you think about the importance of building a diverse team and then creating an inclusive work environment.
1: Absolutely. So both me and my partner, Ragubir, are, uh, I mean, have, have been in uh, business for long and led companies and led large teams. So when we got together, we saw very clearly that diversity is a key metric to solve difficult problems. I mean, uh, a, a small, homogeneous team might be able to deliver a, a small objective quickly maybe once but when you're talking about long arduous difficult problems with lots of heterogeneity diverse teams are always better and that's the reason we have built a team which is very diverse already and we continue to look for adding more diversity we are actually a little short in uh, amount of uh, the number of female engineers we have been able to recruit mm-hmm. so we are we are continuously on the lookout for that so if any engineers mechanical electrical chemical process want to apply for us we are looking looking for them, Uh, female and male both. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so diversity is very important to us. I think that's an important way of we have seen problems being solved and we we encourage that very deeply in our culture.
0: Mm, I love that. And and you already uh, anticipated my next question, which is all of us are challenged with attracting talent and retaining talent right now. I imagine that millennial and Generation Z workers are interested in this decarb space. Is there anything special you're doing to attract and retain talent? Yes.
1: Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely absolutely right. So I think the most important thing is, which I've observed is the Gen Z workers are very self-motivated. I mean, we used to be like, okay, we come in a company and we align to the company's mission. Instead, Gen Z workers are ready to work at home or take a break and uh, from work for six months and figure out a company which aligns with their mission. So (laughs) so
0: isn't that interesting? I know. (laughs)
1: So so that mission alignment is very important, but uh, because we're doing such a, we're playing such an important role and our mission is kind of entirely climate change impact. So, a lot of the Gen Z type of workers uh, enjoy and like our our clear mission and our our objective in the company. And at the same time, we have we are in North Carolina, so it's a great place to live. We've got beaches and mountains very nearby. So, <laughs> and it's uh, it's a cheaper cost of living as well. So, so that I mean the, the work life balance, which is a very important aspect for Gen Zers, it's uh, it's there here. We obviously offer uh, competitive packages and stuff like that. But I think the most important thing which we have which probably works for our Gen Z team is the the problems which we are solving are really big, difficult problems, and we do them together in a in a team like environment, which is which is a lot of fun because as soon as you we celebrate the victories, we we are we glue and sort of trying to solve these problems together when we are in difficult in the weekend. So that team culture is what really attracts the Gen Zers because I think the impact they all want to feel and make that impact, and that's what we provide the opportunity.
0: So interesting and really relevant to our uh, work in oil and gas and, and our participation in decarbonization is articulating that mission and then creating this team-solving environment. We um, at Adam and Teen are really enjoyed this idea of company innovation teams taking on, bringing diverse people together. So I, I love that that you're uh, building that image. Let me ask a little bit about you as a leader, because one thing that is very unusual about you, Shantanu, and why I am really loving talking to you is you have a big picture vision, which you can articulate with big numbers, but in a way that I and other people can understand. So you have this big vision, but you're solving really detailed, geeky problems um, on a daily basis. So how do you as a leader um, balance those two things and make sure that you keep one eye on the big picture? Because at least for me, it's all, it's hard to get out of the weeds and keep looking up and, and remembering these the the context in which we're trying to, to create these solutions. How, how do you make manage kind that of as an individual leader?
1: So it's a balancing act for sure. I mean, we have to solve these little, little problems. And uh, at the same time, the big picture is extremely key to, to make sure you're in the right direction and the right, right forest, cutting the path rather than the wrong forest. <laughs> you know, So, <laughs> exactly. so uh, I think it, it all boils down to the team. I mean, we have a very strong technical team. My partner, Raghubir is the core technical guy. Yeah. He's kind yeah. of the deep technical 30 years R&D person. And I'm the venture capital commercialization serial entrepreneur type of guy who the both of us coming together kind of give that balance where uh-huh. deep technical and uh, overall business need kind of balances out. But I mean, when you think about the type of companies, which we, we are in like innovation companies, the challenges are quite uh, similar. I mean, you have to, we are right now solving a problem, which we probably get to commercial in three years. And when you're thinking about today's problems and solving them, you actually have to think about the problems you're going to solve in three years, because that's when you will be commercial. Mm-hmm. So, as, as a, I mean, there's a famous saying by this, uh, I think it's a hockey player who says that I run to where the puck will be. And <laughs> right. I think mean, that's the bottom line for innovation. You gotta, you gotta invent for the future, not for today, not solve today's problem. You solve three year or five year later problem, because that's when you will be commercial. Right. So that's what we have to continuously do as we are adapting and pivoting. And that's sort of. so
0: interesting. I hadn't thought about that because we're all um, obsessed with supply chains today. But you have to think about the manufacturing and supply chain challenges of three years and the constraints on materials and whatever else. That's super interesting. So I do want to give you an opportunity to make a plug for what's next for um, Sestion and Sestera. And if you're if the focus of how others can get involved is participating in fundraising or partnerships, what, what's next and what would be your ideal partnerships with our, our listeners?
1: Absolutely. So Sestera is basically building. A massive team now to scale up the direct air capture technology. So we're looking for strong engineers who are passionate about the space to come and join us. Mechanical, electrical, chemical, process, uh, material scientists, chemists—you name it. We're we're and business folks as well. So we're hiring everyone. So if you're interested in this space, if you want to move to North Carolina and you're good and passionate about this, come and t- talk to us. Sustera is hiring big time on the Sustion side, uh, where we have this invention factory, essentially inventing new technologies for decarbonization. Our next plays are around are the next few technologies which we are going to spin out in the future probably some point next year one of them is around co2 utilization converting co2 to sustainable aviation fuel so that is one technology which we are quite excited about it's in the lab at benscale right now doing quite well and we are hoping that we can bring that out into its own spin out and its own company next year and then there's another technology where we are making carbon-free hydrogen out of methane so that's another technology Mm. which we are quite excited about so there are a few technologies in the works in sustenance which will we'll spin out in the in due course and uh Obviously there, we need partners for everything, right? From financing to entrepreneurs who want to come and join us and lead these companies to sort of scale. So hiring people and also partnerships around building these initial pilot units. So oil companies who want to do that, we are absolutely welcoming those sort of alliances. as well.
0: Right, you can imagine, I can imagine a a technical exchange of um, experience and relevance and a personnel that could be really exciting. Okay, last question for you. I'd love to hear a little bit about the values that drive you as an individual and how you're changing given all the challenges in, in your in your work life. So what drives you and how are you evolving to meet the, the moment?
1: So I was an oil and gas guy all my life, right? I mean, I was uh, worked in Schlumberger for about 10 years of my life and then moved into venture capital private equity. And then around 2016, 17, I really was evaluating what is my value just your mm-hmm. question, right? So the principal value which led me to found Sustion was that I need to leave the world in a better place for my children mm-hmm. as compared to what I got from my parents. And we all are mission bound to that. We, we all owe this to our children. So I think in Sustion and Sustera, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to fix what we have done as mankind and put the earth back into position where we can actually stand proud and, and hand it over hand it over to our children as we go away. And we do that all around the core. In, uh, I mean, we business model guys, but more than that, we are invention and innovation and science guys. So we are inventing these new core technologies to bring it to the world. And that's, that's again, a core value for us. You know, we, our bedrock is innovation. In science, and we want to change the world through that innovation and in science. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what, I-
0: you to know, I just love that. I just it's just so exciting, and it's so aligned with the the changes that we're making as an industry to be leading into this future. So, I'm sorry I interrupted you. My enthusiasm no, no. overflows. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I was just saying uh, the next part of your question was around how has last few years changed, right? So that's something which we have had to learn as well. Both uh, me and my partner, remote working has not been easy. We have had to learn how to adapt to this sort of environment where, I mean, we have labs, right? We have people, so two people are in the lab, rest of the whole team is out there in, the, in their homes, working from homes. It's not easy. So we have, we've learned that. But I think what we have now trying to adopt more and more is we're learning from how software teams work. Even though we are hard science, hardware type of company, lab type of company, but we are trying to approach R&D development, much like software doing scrums. So we set up targets almost like a software scrum and and develop our technology in that scrum based repetitive, iterative model. And I think that's, that's a, that's a different way to think about it. And I think it's a, it's a good way to think about it, to fail fast, to allow us to improve fast. So that's probably the fundamental change, which has happened apart from sort of all of our employees having more flexibility working from home and all that, but uh, that's what COVID has done to us.
0: (laughs) I think that's really interesting. And a lot of the, the things that we're trying to solve for in the industry is how our ways of working have to change as we also are participating and innovating. So how interesting that, uh, The COVID brought us yet another uh, innovation in how we work together. So Shantanu, what a great pleasure it's been to talk to you today. Thank you for your optimism and your uh, dedication to to the work we're we're all moving towards together. It's been a pleasure to have you.
1: Same here, Tisha. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here and uh, I look forward to listening to this podcast and more from you in the future.
0: Oh, it sounds great. Thank you. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Shantanu Argawal for taking the time to share his vision and uh, execution strategy with us. The game-changing insight for me was this idea that we need... 5,000 times more carbon removal than we have. That kind of scale is just extraordinary and speaks to the relevance of getting our oil and gas industry involved in all of these decarbonization opportunities. I'd like to know what you found interesting. So please visit our podcast website at energythinks.com backslash podcast and let us know. I would love it if you would take a second and rate us. It really helps other oil and gas leaders find the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you to Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making everything you've heard today possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.